Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. Several months ago at the NATO SEP, I've talked about NATO a few times on this episode or on this show. I have I had the opportunity to meet an amazing individual. I actually just heard more about his background just five minutes ago, and so I'm really excited to to follow up with him and see where his career has led him and get his advice for you, the audience. This is Colonel Chris McKinney. He's the chief of staff for the 46 Military Police. He's also the director and program manager for the Task Force 46. He's with the National Guard. He has tons of experience. We're going to be talking about that today. Colonel, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks uh, for having me on today. Great to see you, virtually speaking, again. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. When, when we were in September and I was watching these presentations about urban warfare and um, hearing the different perspectives, John Spencer gave a great presentation about the Mumbai attacks. He was on the show um, on the anniversary of the Mumbai attack in November. And now we're fast-forwarding you know, several months, and here we are with Ukraine and everything else going on. Of course, for our audience, this is pre-recorded, so this might be slightly outdated by the time it comes out. But in terms of a world of shifting priorities, um, you know, nation-states either acting like morons or individuals acting like morons, you know, you have a, a ton of perspective that you can provide the field on from our side of the house. How do you counter or how do you make sure that we train up to be able to combat these, these, uh, you know, I would say horrific situations. And so just to, just to set the stage um, briefly for our audience, can you provide a background of, you know, where you can come from talking about the subject? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm an attorney as well, but I also uh, was a special you are. <laughs> the FBI for uh, eight years. I did uh, the FBI for eight years in the Washington field office, um, which I actually had to be out of the military during that time period. Before that, I had been a, uh, an infantry captain and, uh, I kind of went into a standby ready reserve during the course of the time served with the FBI, got back in uh, to the military uniform after 9-11. There had been a, a lawsuit associated with agents being able mm. to do both military and be a special agent since they're considered uh, an essential employee. And then uh, been doing uh, the military really kind of full time ever since um, mm. with the NORTHCOM mission, United States Northern Command mission that we have. Uh, for homeland uh, defense now is a requirement for us. And then uh, before that, it had been uh, Suburn. Of course, the chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear uh, used to be with an E at the end, Suburn E, and that was high-yield explosives. They dropped that a couple of uh, years back. And uh, now they've also added the all-hazards requirements in there. So really, the, the NORTHCOM mission sets is the, uh, the HD, homeland defense, the all-hazards, the Suburn and weapons of mass destruction. So uh, mm. by hook or by crook, uh, I've had to get uh, very good at, at understanding some of that. And uh, frankly, John, I do it uh, through working with uh, subject matter experts like yourself and a lot of our interagency partners uh, who have plowed a lot of the ground before in different environments. And um, it's it's led to a great mission, one that we hope we'll never have to fully execute mm -hmm. uh, because uh, should we have to do that, it, it's uh, probably going to mean it's been America's worst day, and and we we hope that never happens. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. The um, you know, thank you for the compliment. You know, when I served on the National Strike Team, um, I was tasked with looking at uh, Seaburn and um, understanding 
um, not just civilian military operations and protecting critical assets, but how populations would deal with that, both from a messaging perspective, cultural perspective, um, and um, literally just evacuations and, and triage. And so to, to talk with another expert um, who has been what I would consider on the front lines of setting up a lot of these things and dealing with it firsthand while I've been looking at, you know, the possibility of, you know, the America's worst day. Right. Um, that's um, it's, it's, it's interesting to like get in the room of the both sides of the perspective, the strategic planning from the, from the civilian side and then get to the military side and um, start to coordinate. And I think that's really really important both from the audience perspective but also for the future of emergency management the best emergency managers are the best coordinators i'm not going to be the chris mckinney's of the world the colonel mckinney's of the world but i can meet you i can say hey what are you doing what can you provide what are the resources what are the training that we need what and start just diving down capabilities and parceling that out while you're doing your mission investigations we can do our mission in supporting, you know, civilian populations and getting people out of the way of, you know, um, bad problems. Oh, so. absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you said, your experience on the, the strike teams there with FEMA, just immeasurable experience, you know, and, mm. and really, John, to get back to today, I think kind of the initial question that you asked with uh, respect to Ukraine um, I mean, a heart wrenching scenario, obviously a democracy being attacked by somebody else, uh, you know, foreign policy strategically, I mean, it is a, it is a bit of a trick bag, you know, with uh, the NATO nations and Ukraine not being a member of NATO. So, of course, there's no Article 5 invocation. But one thing that I think we have seen um, is that there is significant uh, dense urban fighting in, in some of these, you know, city centers. I mean, obviously, hasn't uniquely happened in uh, Kiev yet in the capital. But I mean, when it does, you know, that is a significant population there where um, those folks are going to have to be doing dense urban operations, which when you ask about the preparation, that's something that we saw not only from a homeland perspective many, many years ago, uh, but we knew that there were OCONUS uh, overseas applications to it as well. So, you know, we've been really studying that uh, that dense urban model for a long time. Learned a lot from Dr. Russ Glenn when he was at Tradoc and um, Professor Bert Tussing up at the Army War College, as well as PhDs at, you know, MIT at the Lincoln Labs. I could go on and on. But, you know, we have learned a lot from our from our partners on that. Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's disaster tough endorsements. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply disaster-tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700-degree blast of heat... Repeated three meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme Series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID 19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic, reusable, yes, reusable COVID 19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech distributed by FS Global. 
This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Okay, let's jump back in. Yeah, the um, the idea is that, um, you know, based off of what we're looking at Ukraine, one, kudos to them for just refusing to bow down and um, talk about, um, you know, 9-11 was probably the last time I saw or felt really multiple conflicting communities come together that uh, different political backgrounds, different whatever, and say, hey, we're on a single mission here. This was bad. And we're all united in that. Whether it was the United States, we also had lots of, you know, foreign friends who said, hey, like we, you know, we recognize this was a bad day for you. And, um, you know, you look at what Putin has done and, um, you know, you're looking at what Switzerland is doing right now. You're looking at what Germany is doing right now. You're looking at, you know, um, some of these other people who may be conflicting priorities and political opinions and everyone's recognizing because the Ukrainians, it's, it's really uniting on the other side. And um, I hope they don't have to, to pay for that. But uh, I am grateful that um, they kind of woke up the world a little bit saying like, hey, we're, you know, democracy has its place. Absolutely. You're right. And, and obviously, you know, the, the support of, of this country and, you know, certainly our hearts are with the Ukrainian people who are bravely facing all this adversity. And much like you said, John, I mean, seeing the EU come together, you know, just yesterday, I know this may not come out for a couple of you know weeks or something, but I mean that that was absolutely the the kumbaya moment, frankly, yeah. that we should have a lot. And you're right, I saw that firsthand as you know an FBI agent following the you know the attacks on the World Trade Centers, and I was at the Pentagon, and and we saw that immediately following, and and you know very unfortunate at how quickly that wanes, though. So mm. uh, I hope for this one, you know, we can keep the support together because there are other peer and near peer actors, and uh, certainly in China with uh, what they're looking at for the South China Seas, and mm. obviously their their historical arguments uh, to bring Taiwan back into the fold may be on the horizon too. I, I certainly hope not, but uh, those are critical things, and um, yeah, I mean. We held together for a while after 9-11, but certainly uh, you, you saw a splintering of countries and even interagency support for one another mm. um, not too much longer after it, which is very unfortunate. Over. Yeah, I wish that we didn't require dramatic events to help people, remind people of like their, I want to say their place, but their, their place in the world, their place in their community of like, hey, it's, there's, there's stupid people and those stupid people are bad. And then there's good people and you can have different opinions, but at the end of the day, you need to come together and figure out like negotiation is so much better. I will say my, my one hope with Taiwan is that like, I thought like my prediction, my personal prediction, I'm not an expert, but I was like, okay, are they going to try to follow, um, the Crimea, like, uh, Olympic, Olympic Crimea, Olympic Taiwan, but I'm hoping that the hurt locker that everyone's putting on on Russia right now is making China really reconsider, you know, the numbers. Is it worth it to do it? And you know, hopefully that's uh, that's good for the Taiwanese people as well. But who knows? Let's get over to uh, some of the other subjects that can that can be really helpful because I want other people to hear your perspective. You talked about training, 
and you talked about a training regimen and specifically with, you know, or especially with everything that's happening in the world right now, training is so critically important. Not only did you respond to January 6th, I believe, but you also did training exercise in the Capitol afterwards. And so to hear that, um, to hear that perspective of the, the use of training, if you're going to make a pitch to, you know, emergency managers in the field, why have comprehensive training? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and we found that out with uh, the nuances with uh, the COVID response. Um, this headquarters, the 46 Military Police Command Task Force 46, uh, actually had theater level responsibilities for U.S. Army North and NORTHCOM on the COVID side of the thing. Um, so it was very important that we had conducted a lot of training up, up to that point because almost everything that we do consistently, and I really think the military does a phenomenal job of of planning, training, executing that type of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's no secret. Most of the time, the plan, you know, it gets thrown out the window right away. But if you don't, <laughs> if you don't plan it, you don't spend that time, right? Then yeah. when it comes time to execute, you don't know how to adjust, uh, adapt, which is really, I think, the important takeaway of all that. And the only, the only real ways that you can figure out how to solve those problems at time of need is to run through that regimen. Planning is painful. Training is painful. Uh, but the more realistic I think that you make the planning and the, the execution of the training, the more valuable it is. And, and frankly, John, I'll use it as an example. We were talking about the dense urban initiatives that we've done here at Task Force 46, how they could apply overseas, how they can apply in this country. Uh, we started that out years ago because, um, you know, back when it used to be private, Chris McKinney, uh, in the 80s, actually serving the Reagan military, that's how long I've been around, um, you know, we were doing the mount training, right, to replicate urban centers. Um, and you just, you can never do that. Like, we didn't experience anything like that uh, frictionless environment when we were in Iraq doing searching cordons, right? So there are real world friction points that come into play that the only way you can do that is to exercise it in a city, um, and even though I know there have been a lot of folks on the uh, Department of the Army and other joint services side trying to build facilities, uh, we took a different approach and we said, let's do this in major metropolitan areas. Mm. Uh, one reason, because of the homeland defense threat. And two, you know, it, it added such a sense of realism that we were working uh, with those real world incident commanders on the ground, those uh, fire chiefs, police chiefs that would either be the IC or would be part of a unified command group. Um, and you started to understand that as we did these. And, and we've now, um, you know, before COVID, we had reps in, uh, in New York City and we had reps in Detroit twice um, post COVID, because that's what mm. I'm going to call our period now. Hope, hope, hopefully, fingers yeah. crossed, right? Um, we've been able to do ones back in New York City again out on Randall's Island, and uh, we did them in Los Angeles, and we've got one scheduled for July 22 with Philadelphia, and we're, we're very, very excited about that. So um, all of that goes into the training regiment that we think is imperative to, to conduct the real, um, f- you know, friction-laden training, because without it, I-, I think everybody gets an opportunity to do high fives, back slaps. Mm. But I think you get a walk away without really knowing just where you bend and where you break. When we do it, yeah, we get a good idea, right? Seeing these mm-hmm. kids drive around in LMTVs and major New York City traffic, they get a feel, right? Uh, streets might be closed, but they might not. They might be wide open. Mm-hmm. Same thing we did at the New York, New Jersey Port Authority. 
Um, you know, we worked with Captain Chris Zimmerman over there at the uh, New York, New Jersey Port Authority, and we got an opportunity to see, hey, this is where we'll stage you all if we have a, an event in New York City. But make no mistake about it, the port is a money-making venture, so you need to do what you need to do as quickly as you can because the port's got to reopen. The um, man, you you said this you said this phrase earlier that I I loved. You said training should be painful, or training is painful, and you 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 just made the pitch of why training needs to be painful. On our side of the house, I have found that this is my critique of emergency management, and we are addressing it uh, face on or head on this year. Is I would go to these trainings or these certifications. And they would say, hey, this is a nine to five training for five days a week, but it'd be approaching 3 p.m. And everyone's like, okay, we're going to try to end early. And everybody would be rushing to get out of there. And then the last day, they would, um, they would, they would do a test, post an open book test, and everybody would get the, all 100% of the answers right. You need to walk out of there like, I could have done this for 30 minutes on, on an online click, click, oh, click, man. click. And it's like, what do we need to do? And so uh, I started integrating with urban search and rescue operations, or at least the, the training operations. I was invited to be a speaker there and was so blown away, not by just the, the competency of the instructors, but the participants wanted to stay late every day. They were asking questions. They were, they were pushing them. And then the last day, it was supposed to be a full-scale exercise. It was supposed to go to 10 p.m., it was 11.30. They were still going. They were still asking questions. They wanted to push harder. And I was like, that is the difference. The difference of the, the level of instruction. Emergency managers are passionate. They're, they're people with degrees. They're getting better at their jobs. But we need to get to that level. And so the same thing with you. We're now saying, okay, let's put on our own training. We're going to take the USAR model of skill stations in the morning, scenarios in the afternoon, hot washes, and then a full scale. And we're going to do 12 hour ops at the at this end of this thing, operational period. And we're going to, basically we're calling it as adventures you go. We're going to do checks along the way. Hey, are you coming up real time? Are you coming up with the right answers? Yes, no, if no, you know, your problems have got to get worse. Your problems about to get worse. Right. And so right. we want to stress them out because if they're stressed in that environment, they, they will be less likely to be stressed or at least they can handle that stress in the real world scenario. So no, it's, um, it's, it's really fascinating to think about how, as you noted, plans basically never get followed. But if your planning process is strong, then you'll most likely be successful, right? Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with, with everything you said. And, you know, prime example of that, even using the urban search and rescue model, um, our, our USAR team uh, for this mission year really is out of California. And they got an opportunity to do that side-by-side -side, uh, station training with FDNY um, and, and Riverside and, and L.A. Fire Department, too, at different mm -hmm. venues. But um, the opportunity to work side-by-side -side was, was so phenomenal for our guys because there is, uh, one, adventure learning, kind of like you mentioned, right? But, two, you're learning uh, from folks that uh, get an opportunity to do it every day with those professional fire departments. Mm -hmm. um, and that you just learn a, a ton about – ways to modify techniques um, to be more efficient and effective. And those guys did, right? They were trying to, to stay way late into the evening beyond the time that we did it. And uh, I said, hey, guys, you know, FDNY is going to charge me overtime for this. You know, I was kidding with them, right? But, you know, um, the FDNY guys were great. They wanted to stay with it and do it. Um, but, I mean, what we learned was great. And, again, it, it's that, that 
training that you actually do, not that there's anything wrong with uh, classroom instruction and everything, but there can be no substitute for hands on really sitting back, scratching your head going, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how I'm going to do this one, but I got to figure it out. So let's roll up the sleeves and and look at this problem set. So it's an effective way, really. Yeah. The, uh, it reminds me of, so we, we kind of implemented that on the, um, on that FEMA team that I served with and, uh, 2017 is May or June. We did this internal training exercise where we had mass flooding go off in Philadelphia. And what we wanted our, our, the unusual circumstance that we wanted to, um, to address was a zoo being impacted by this flood. (laughs) And, you know, we're used to people. We're used to saying, Hey, get people out buses, whatever. How do you deal with, uh, you know, an animal population, especially in a zoo in a city? And so that's what we addressed. And in that, we uh, started looking at all the chemicals in the water that could affect the animals. Something that we, we, we usually know the flood water is really bad, obviously. Right. But specifically looking at the chemicals. Well, you fast forward to Hurricane Harvey. And it was a, I can't give you all the details for the people and for the audience, but there was a, a very similar situation with a human population and a chemical that we were looking at that became very dangerous. And um, it was, it's fascinating to look at that because, because of the training that we, that we did and because we were starting to dive in deeper into some of these stuff, we knew what to look for. We addressed it. The entire Harvey response was shifted for like 18 hours to get this population out of the way. This facility was impacted. Nobody was hurt. And then you fast forward two or three years, and I'm, I'm talking about this at the urban search and rescue uh, training, and the one of the instructors in the back goes, hey, that was you? You were the one who uh, redirected us? I'm like, yeah. So it's just like, it's funny like how like the field is all interconnected, and yet I didn't know that guy you know, three years or four years ago, but now, now we're here. So it, it shows that on my side, man, I wish I was coordinating with USAR a little bit more closely. I wish I was doing this, which is another reason why training and a unified command in that training is so critically important. No, it is. And those were great uh, scenarios that you had there in Philadelphia. I mean, lions and bears and tigers, oh my, I haven't, <laughs> haven't quite seen that one before, you know, but uh, yeah. hey, it can happen, right? I, I did see um, in Katrina exactly what you're talking about with the uh, corrosive chemicals that got into the water, even as we were doing health and welfare checks. Mm-hmm. Um, on into the month of September 2005, right? The sheen on the water from all the chemicals and people's garages and things uh, were really uh, very pervasive. And, uh, you know, you were getting burns on your skin and couldn't figure it out why, but it was just the chemicals uh, coming off the water with the sun. And so mm-hmm. those are all things that you got to consider, right? Because those are one-offs that we don't always train to. And I know sometimes people think the training scenarios get, you know, a little out of whack, a little too crazy, too many, you know, scenarios going on at the same time. But, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, is you've got to plan for the absolute worst because systems will fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, you know, as first responders, whether military or firefighting, EMS, police, you can't just throw your hands up in there, right? You've got to work those, those problem sets. So, and, and interesting, John, I, I think you're tracking this, right? But we uh, we do have an event next week. Uh, it's going to be March 8th through 11 in Buffalo. And it's mm-hmm. uh, the cyber effects on a consequence management exercise for us. It's just about the time of that, man. 
Department of Defense, uh, you know, support the civil authorities, but it, it's going to be great, right? Lots of uh, great academic presentations, and then we get to roll up our sleeves with some tabletop uh, cyber effects that follow, you know, essentially, you know, some type of suburban event, and uh, you can't throw your hands up, so we got to roll up our sleeves and, and figure that out as a collective group with a lot of phone-a-friend options. The Canadians are participating, too, on the mm -hmm. uh, Toronto R RCMP side. Um, and that, that's the reason why we did the cyber effects exercise is uh, in training, we, we kept throwing in little cyber injects to things. And, and frankly, it would shut the training down because mm. nobody could figure out how to get past whatever it was, whether it was malware, ransomware, something that affected the water, the electric. Um, and now we're, we're actually working to try to figure it out. And, uh, mm. yeah, I was kind of I was kind of bummed. Actually, a lot of the uh, very scenarios that we had, I, I think, unfortunately, the Russians are using them against the Ukrainians now. So, yeah, my, my team will think I stole those. But uh, <laughs> we, those have been in development for like, uh, you know, over a year and a half. But uh, we look forward to it next week. So the um, speaking of Ukraine. So I've been uh, I think I shared this on LinkedIn on a, just a personal thing. I've, I've been starting to help out because of NATO SEP. And, and talking to some NATO partners. I've been helping Denmark, Finland, a couple other places out. But I also had the opportunity to meet other people who work directly with NATO and, and just in my own research of trying to figure out who does what. And, um, you know, uh, I had one of those people on here, Kyle King, um, who does crisis management with NATO. And he and I were talking and I got connected with some other people. It's been a little crazy the last uh, four or five days. But basically talking about cyber, one of the big problems right now is just trying to figure out how many people looking at one specific problem set, right? People in hospitals, how many people are in hospitals? How do you get that data? How are they tracking that from the NATO side outside of, out of Ukraine? And as I was talking to people, one of their biggest problems is it's actually getting the data because they're so they're being hit so many times by Russia that they're not even able to get reliable data. And so it's uh it's just showing that, they are attacking everybody on multiple fronts to hamper how much knowledge or how much pain they're inflicting on Ukraine right now. Um, but they also don't want the world to know how much Ukraine is pushing back. So it is, um, cyber is, you know, I have this theory, by the way, you can correct me if I'm wrong. So it's like David and Goliath. So I have this idea that, you know, if, if in, I don't know, Old Testament times, whatever, 5,000 years ago, if the idea of that if your strongest warrior can take out our strongest warrior, then there's no war because if my strongest guy can take out your army, then, you know, it all works out. Does the same thing start to happen with cyber and technology where we're going to get to the point where your my technology is so advanced that, you know, I, I could take out your tech, so you might as well not even fight the war. That's essentially that's what's happening right now. It's what's kind of what's happens with nukes, right? Right. So it feels like, a, I don't know. No, I mean, you know, you bring up a great point, John. I mean, I think we're, we're clearly in uncharted territory. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to get into anything about offensive or defensive cyber because of the classification. But, yeah. you know, from the from the perspective of, you know, the will of the people that are involved, I think that's that's critical. Right. So um, could the will of the American people survive 72 hours of financial attacks when you can't access your money or you know, you've lost power and you can no longer utilize a cell phone or cell towers are taken out. So mm. um, I think the winner of that event really is the one that presents with the most resiliency, right? Because the, the ground effects 
uh, won't change, right? There are alternatives for power generation that uh, that we can certainly do as long as we've got, you know, the capabilities to access gasoline, mo gas, diesel, whatever those generators are running on. Um, it's going to be prioritized, right? The hospitals are going to get priority for that, but. I think it really goes back to the will of the people. Um, and, and in America, you know, I, I'm very hopeful that we would be able to uh, have the will that we're capable of having as Americans um, and outlast the effects of any type of cyber event that went on. But, you know, time time will certainly tell uh, how that would manifest itself. But we, we certainly try to get creative. Uh, and that's really one of the reasons why we're doing that uh, that cyber event, right? So we can talk about that. How can we overcome this stuff, um, regardless of what near peer or foreign state actor does it, or even if it's domestic, right? How do we overcome it? Because at the end of the day, uh, we still have a job to do for the American public, and we're we're dead set on making that happen. So, um, so I look forward to doing that next week, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and the comms thing, right, John, if I could, right, so we, we do communication exercises everywhere we go. If I can harken back to that, uh, you know, 9-11-2001, I'm sitting there side by side with an Arlen County uh, Fire Department guy. I walk away. I've got my Harris 152 Motorola. It was a brick. Uh, essentially, they're on the same channel. And, you know, even in the clear, uh, I walked away from him probably 20, 30 feet, tried to give him a call. Systems still didn't talk to each other, right? Even in the clear at the time. Um, so that that's stuck in my crawl over the years. And so I can tell you for, for the last 10 years, we've done communications exercises up, down, and laterally uh, to make sure that we can do it. Lots of changes, but, you know, trying to figure out what peripherals work. Because um, if we're not really able to effectively communicate, then we're just camping out when we exercise, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're not really, might as well have uh, 10, 10 cans and some string. Um, and we find a lot of friction points, especially in the high rise, which a lot more um, cities are going to even mm -hmm. higher than, you know, they had been in the past. A lot of subterranean environments where you don't have repeaters, um, people might go. We're certainly seeing that in Ukraine. A lot of people go into the subway system for it. Mm -hmm. um, so we try to exercise that communication piece too, which is, which is hard um, because systems still don't communicate the way that they should. So we could have an entire episode of literally what you just talked about right there. My, my thing is like, so you just talked about resiliency. Now I, sometimes I make fun of resilience. So I'm like, be disaster tough. But if you're talking about resiliency of being able to bounce back, that's exactly the place of resiliency. You're talking about no matter who, no matter where, no matter when, what is your capability and, and your, you know, your time to man up moment to, to be able to overcome? Now, for all the disasters I've been at, most of them have been natural. I've been at some very unfortunate um, active assailant events as well. Every time I'm, I'm in that situation, there's a group of people who desperately need help. And there is a, a large group of people who I've been shocked by their level of resiliency, their ability to kind of dust, dust uh, the crap off and get back to work or, you know, try to figure out something. They, once, they, once they do that, it's, it's empowering to watch, kind of like what's happening in Ukraine right now. It's like dusting off and get to work. But it's, a, it's another, you know, another thing. But we are talking about communication. Oh my gosh, if we can get to the point where if I'm reading after actions and I don't see communication and it's like not like, oh, 
did they forget to add this in here by like, wow, like communication was actually good. I'll, I'll be blown away. So if you can figure out communication, I think it should be uh, constantly addressed. It's funny enough, it's on every single AAR, so it should be addressed at like every single training so we can get away from that eventually. But it's a good point. It's a, it's a sticking point for all of us. What do you mean by communication? You just talked about technology. I talk about common language. I've been in rooms where I've been talking to, to ops and I've been talking to like their GIS staff. They're saying the exact same words and they are on different planets. Right. And so like it just get, even getting on that part, again, going back to the training piece of common language, common communication systems, practicing those communications, making sure the communications are up to date, which is a funding issue technically. It you is. know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Hence why we should have you back on to do an episode possibly on that. But today we talked about Ukraine Thank you, sir. We talked about training. We talked about resiliency. We talked about cyber. We talked about a lot of uh, communication. We talked about all these different things. And it really what it comes down to is, as you noted in the beginning, this unified command, bringing people together, putting the pain on people in that training environment so that they can be resilient when things happen in the world. And I just want to thank you so much again for coming on the show and taking the time to to share your insights. And I'm sure we're going to get a lot of comments um, from the audience. We'll bring you back on and, and share those comments with you. John, uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. Great show. Big fan. So uh, I, I look forward to future podcasts that uh, you have on Disaster Tough with uh, so many of the awesome people that you're, you're able to get on there. I'm not one of them, but uh, it's been it's been my pleasure. There's no humility needed in that because uh, you obviously know your stuff and you've been um, – not just a patriot in the true sense of actually helping out the United States, but you've also been um, integral part in just like the last 30 minutes alone. So again, thank you so much for coming on. For all those who are listening to this episode, you probably learned a lot. I obviously had fun asking questions and I'm sure you're going to have more questions. If you want to ask a question to Colonel McKinney, the best way to do that is to leave a comment for him and on one of our disaster tough um, channels for social media, or you can send, if you have a very specific question for the Colonel, you can send us an, uh, an email at info at DobermanEMG.com and we'll pass it on to him. If you like this episode, which you should have, for this is a shameless plug moment, you got to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Make sure you look listen to this episode, listen to future episodes, and we'll see you next week.